Story 11 of The Human Boy and the War by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 11, Cornwallis and Me and Fate. Dr. Dunstan was always awfully great on the classic idea of fate. He made millions of efforts to make us understand it, but failed. Blades said he understood it, and so did Abbott, and of course the Sixth said they did, but they always pretended to understand everything, including the war. Fate is the same as Greek tragedy, and a very difficult subject indeed. Anyway, Cornwallis and me couldn't understand fate, or how it worked exactly, until that far-famous whole holiday and the remarkable adventure which made Cornwallis and me blaze out into great fame, though only for a short while. As long as it lasted, however, the fame was wonderful, for the sudden curious result of being somebody, after you have for many years been nobody, not only leaves its mark on your own character, but quite changes the opinion of other people about you, and also the way they behave to you. Enemies slack off and even offer to become friends, and people who have been your friends when you were nobody redouble in their affection and even get a sort of feeble fame themselves, owing to being able to approach you as a matter of course and not as a favor. All this happened to Cornwallis and me, and though fame is said to have a very bad effect on some people and make them get above themselves, like the Germans and Austrians, for instance, in our case, though dazzling in its way, the fame died out almost as quickly as it sprang up. In fact, to show you what people are and what envy may do, just as Cornwallis and me began to sink back into our usual obscurity in the lower third, some beasts, such as Pegram and the Master Brown, said in public that the whole excitement was a mild attack of hysteria and utter footle, and that neither Cornwallis nor me had done anything but make little asses of ourselves, and that it was all pure luck and not fame at all. But anyway, the adventure did this for Cornwallis and also for me. It explained what the doctor really meant by fate, and afterwards we were always tremendously keen about fate and spoke well of it, though before it had, if anything, rather bored us, because at the age of ten your fate is generally so far off. Until the great adventure, I can't honestly say I had seen fate bothering about Cornwallis, and he had never seen it bothering in the least about me, but afterwards, having, as you may say, got thoroughly to understand its ways and its special interest in us on a very important occasion, in fact, what you might call a matter of life and death, we always felt a sharp interest in it, and often noticed little marks of fate at work, both in school and out sometimes for us and sometimes for other people. Not, of course, always for us, because, as Cornwallis said, and I agreed, we weren't everybody, and when it came to prizes and getting into elevens and other advantages, fate undoubtedly favored various chaps far more than us. But, as I pointed out to Cornwallis, after saving our lives in a very ingenious and unexpected way, no doubt it had done enough for us for some years, and intended to give us a rest. 
We both saw the fairness of this and did not complain in the least at our rather bad failures in the lower third afterwards. But curiously enough, Dr. Dunstan, though so well up in Greek tragedy and the ways of fate as a rule, missed this and said our reports were a scandal and a source of the utmost discomfort to him, and far from showing our gratitude to fate as we ought to have shown it after the terrible affair of Foster Day. Foster Day was an important day at Merivale. It arose from the mists of antiquity, as they say, because among the first pupils old Dunstan ever had when he started at Merivale was a chap called Foster. He was very rich, and his father lived at Dalham, on the sea coast, and had a mansion and thousands of acres of land running down to the sea. This Foster seems to have liked the doctor, and been a great success at Merivale, and his rich father evidently liked the doctor too, and so when young Foster had the bad luck to fall for his country in the Boer War, the rich father Foster built a beautiful and precious chapel to his memory at Dalham, and had his soldier's son carved in pure marble and put in the chapel. It was known as a memorial chapel, and simply couldn't be beaten in its way and not content with doing this, the rich father arranged with Dunstan that fifty boys from Merivale should once every year come to a service in this chapel, and after the service was over be entertained in his grounds and on the seashore with games and luscious foods. The doctor fell in with this excellent plan readily, and now for some years, on the seventh day of July, which was the day the splendid young soldier Foster had fallen, fifty chaps from Merivale drove over in breaks to Dalham and attended the memorial service and sang a hymn and afterwards enjoyed themselves in the spacious grounds and on the beach. For, though not actually belonging to the rich old Foster, the beach finished off his estates, and so he had a special sort of right to it, and had built a boathouse where he kept a steam launch and other vessels. The day came round as usual, and by rather exceptional luck, Cornwallis and myself got into the fifty, for nobody was barred, and it was always arranged that a certain number of chaps from the lower school should join the giddy throng. So we went in white flannels and the school blazers, little knowing what lay before us. The day was slightly clouded by the fact that Brown was the master who took us, for Brown loves to display his power before strangers and make us look as small as possible in order that he may shine. But the great Mr. Foster, though what he had done that was great, I don't know, saw through Brown with ease and told him we must do what we liked and have a good time in every way, not, in fact, hampered by Brown. After the service in the chapel, where some good singing was done by us, and a clergyman preached a rather longish sermon on duty and so on, the solemn business of the day began, and we had an ample meal. When I tell you that there were enough raspberries and cream for all, I need add no more. If all those raspberries had been put in one pile, we should have had no small part of a mountain, as Virgil so truly says. The great thing after dinner was to go and bathe and ramble on the shore. This was the time that Brown could be most easily escaped, and as he had to keep his attention on the chaps who went swimming, those who did not were able to enjoy themselves in various interesting ways. The tide was out, and by a little dodging behind rocks, Cornwallis and me, who did not bathe, were able gradually, as it were, to slip out of the danger zone, which we did do.' 
a magnificent and interesting beach spread out before us and we decided to explore it so we retreated fast for some distance till a cliff jutted out and entirely concealed us and then we went slower and explored as we went cornwallis had a watch and as there was no serious work on hand till tea at five o'clock we had more than two hours we did some natural history and found some pools full of marine wonders such as sea anemones and blenny fish which in skilled hands can be made as tame as white mice and can live out of the sea between tides we also collected shells and much to my amusement i collected one shell which i thought was empty until i felt a gentle crawling in my trousers pocket and discovered that a hermit crab had lived in the shell and was frantically trying to escape this of course i allowed him to do and no doubt he is puzzling to this day about what happened to upset his usual life on we went and when the beach got narrower and i said it was natural but cornwallis thought not he thought the tide was coming in which would account for the increasing narrowness of the beach i said in that case cornwallis we had better go back because you can see by the marks on the cliff that the tide will come here in great quantities and in fact the water will be jolly deep and cornwallis said he supposed it would the time also was getting on and we found it was past four but of course we meant getting back fast with an occasional run and had allowed half the time to get back that we allowed to go out we were just turning after going a few hundred yards farther when a most interesting thing appeared the cliffs hung over rather and were made of red sandstone and very steep but ahead of us was a ledge of rock halfway up the cliff and on it a mysterious little house made of bits of old boat and painted with tar it was extraordinary to see such a thing in such a lonely spot and cornwallis who was rather suspicious owing to the war and being a boy scout wondered if it was all right because if you are once a boy scout as travers minor pointed out you are always a boy scout and though you may not be scouting in a professional sort of way yet if anything peculiar happens or you get a chance of doing good to the country you must instantly look into it so cornwallis decided to go and examine this queer shed and i went with him the door was open but we saw no signs of life it was a solid building made of heavy timbers and there was a padlock on the door inside was a pleasant smell of tar and cobbler's wax and fish it seemed to belong to a mariner of some sort but on the other hand what mariner could possibly want to make his house in such a weird spot there was no bed or washing basin or chest of drawers to show that the stranger lived there but there were many interesting things including a lobster pot a telescope and a large lantern of the sort used on board ship i saw nothing peculiarly suspicious but cornwallis did from the first he took rather a serious view of it and when he found a green tin full of petrol his face went white and he said it was fate i said what the dickens do you mean cornwallis and he said i mean towler that this is the hiding place of a german spy there's a telescope with which he picks up periscopes and there's a lamp with which he signals to the submarines by night and there's the petrol he takes to them to replenish their tanks and this shows the doctor was right you can get fate in real life as well as greek tragedies and i said but the prawn nets and the fishing lines and corks and paint and so on 
and he said, These things are merely blinds to distract the eye from the others. So I said, Well, what are you going to do about it? And he said, I'm going straight back, and after tea, or even before, I shall tell the great Mr. Foster there is a pro-German traitor under his cliff, and offer to show him the way to the spot. I'll help, I said, but the thing is to be careful and surprise the spy at his work. Just as I said these words, curiously enough, the spy surprised us, and we found ourselves in a position that wanted enormous presence of mind. Suddenly we heard the sound of heavy feet outside, and as there was only one way up to the hut, it was clear we could not escape without being seen. And if seen, of course, our object was lost, for the spy would make a bolt of it. The question was where to hide, and by the best possible luck there was a chance to do so. A big tarpaulin hung on a nail on the side of the hut, and it was of great size and came nearly to the ground, while at its feet was a seaman's box. Owing to the fortunate smallness of Cornwallis and me, there was ample room for concealment behind the tarpaulin, and our feet were hidden by the box. So we got behind it and hardly dared to breathe, though just before the traitor came in, Cornwallis had time to whisper to me, If he's come for his tarpaulin coat, we're done for, and he'll very likely kill us. And I whispered to him, Be hopeful, fate may be on our side, and it's not the weather for a tarpaulin coat anyway. Then the spy came in, and though I was not able to see him, Cornwallis, by a lucky chance, got a buttonhole of the coat level with his eye, and saw the fearful spectacle of the spy. He was a dreadful object, with wickedness fairly stamped on him, so Cornwallis said afterwards. He was a big man, with humpbacked shoulders and a coconut-like head, far too small for his body and legs. He was grey, and had a shaggy beard and a wide mouth that showed his teeth. These were broken and black. His nose was flat and small, and his eyes rolled in his head as he looked round his hut. They were black and ferocious to a most savage extent. He kept making a snorting sound, which was his manner of breathing. He wore dirty white trousers and a jersey, and upon his feet were dirty canvas shoes. He had no hat, and he didn't look the sort of person that fate would be interested in, but you never know. He suspected nothing, and had not seen us come in, which was the great fear of my mind. The creature did not stop long, yet long enough to give himself away for ever as a spy, for he took one of the green tins of petrol, and then, saying some English swear words to himself of the worst kind, went out and slammed the door behind him. We nearly shouted with joy, but a moment later our joy was changed into the most terrible sorrow, because the spy fastened the door behind him. We heard a chain rattle and a padlock click, so there we were, entirely at the mercy of a creature evidently quite dead to pity in every way. This was, of course, fate again, as Cornwallis pointed out. There was a window about a foot square high up in the roof of the hut, and when the spy shut the door and locked us in, everything became dark excepting for the light from this narrow window. Therefore, when we were sure our enemy had gone and there was not a sound outside, I got on to a table and Cornwallis climbed on my back, from which he was able to look out through the window. Luckily, it faced the sea, and Cornwallis reported that the sea had come a great deal nearer, and that the spy was only about fifty yards off. He stood on a sort of pier of rocks, and was pulling in a rope to which was attached 
a small motorboat. Then, naturally, I wanted to get on Cornwallis's shoulders, but he told me not to move for a moment. Then he said that the spy had got into the boat and was evidently going to sea, and then he said he had gone. I next climbed onto Cornwallis and so proved the truth of his words, for I distinctly saw the motorboat speed off with the spy in it. I also saw that the tide had come in, and soon it was actually beating against the rocks twenty-five feet or so below us. When the motorboat had disappeared in a westerly direction, Cornwallis and me got down off the table and considered what we ought to do. The first thing is to make every possible effort to escape at any cost, I said. But he said that he had already thought of that and felt pretty certain it was beyond our power. The window seemed the only hopeful place, but it was made not to open, and the glass was thick, and Cornwallis said we couldn't have got through the hole even if there had been no glass. But I said, it is well known, Cornwallis, that if a man can get his head through a hole, he can get his body through. And he said, it isn't well known at all. You might, because you have got a head like a tadpole, but I couldn't. I said I was sure I had read it somewhere, but anyway it didn't matter. We examined the hut thoroughly and found it was only too well and solidly made. We were utter prisoners, in fact, and owing to the spy not knowing it, might very likely be left to die of starvation. He might even have gone to join a submarine and never come back. Perhaps he does know we are here all the time, said Cornwallis. Perhaps he spotted us and pretended he didn't. In that case, he may have locked us in deliberately to starve us, not caring to waste a shot on us. This thought depressed us a good deal, and presently the sun sank and the light began to fade, and a seagull that settled outside on the roof uttered a melancholy and doleful squawk. Of course, we were far from despairing yet, and Cornwallis made a cheerful remark, and reminded me that if we had eaten our last meal on earth, at any rate it was a jolly good one, and I said, there may be food concealed here, for that matter, we'd better have a good hunt and look into every hole and corner before it is dark. This we did without success. There were many strange things there, including pieces of wreckage, a bit of an old ship's steering wheel, and a brass bell with a ship's name on it, but there was nothing eatable excepting some fish to bait a lobster pot, and the fish hadn't been caught yesterday, and we had by no means reached the stage of exhaustion in which we could regard it as food. Cornwallis said, as a matter of fact, our great enemy will be thirst. I am frightfully thirsty already, for that matter. And I said, so am I, now you mention it. As the light died away, we held a sort of a council and tried to decide what exactly was our duty, to England firstly and to ourselves secondly. We talked a good deal until our voices grew queer to ourselves, and it all came back to the same simple fact. Our duty was to get out, and we could not. Then I had the best idea that had yet come to us. I said, as we can't get out, we must try and get somebody in the outer world to let us out. The only question is, shall we attract anybody but the spy if we raise an alarm? Cornwallis said, of course, that was the question, but it didn't matter because we couldn't raise an alarm. I said, if we howl steadily together once every sixty seconds by your watch, like a minute gun at sea, somebody is bound to hear sooner or later. And he said, far from it, Towler, we shall only tire ourselves out and get hungry as well as thirsty for no good. 
our voices wouldn't go any distance through these solid walls and even if they did we are evidently in a frightfully lonely and secluded place miles and miles from civilization else the spy wouldn't have chosen it for his operations i admitted this but we did try a yell or two the result was feeble and i myself said that if any belated traveller heard it he would only murmur a prayer and cross himself and hurry on like they do in books then Corsmallis decided to break the window. He didn't know why exactly, but he felt he wanted to be up and doing in a sort of way. Besides, it was beastly fuggy in the spy's den, so we broke the window with a boat hook, and I got on the shoulders of Cornwallis and had a good yell through it, but no answer came. Then another idea struck me, and it was undoubtedly this idea that saved the situation we got the old ship's bell and hung it up on a rope as near the window as possible and hammered it with the boat hook taking turns of five minutes each this created an immense volume of sound and though of course it was more far more likely to bring the spy back than anybody else we had now reached a pitch of despair and would have even welcomed the spy in a sort of way Cornwallis, from time to time, still worried about our duty, but I had long passed that, for it was nine o'clock, so at last I told him to shut up and hit the bell harder. It was now quite dark, and from time to time heavy drops of rain fell through the window. The sea-going lamp would have been very useful now, for we might have signaled with it, but though there was an oil lamp in it, we had no matches, and it was therefore useless then in a lull when i was handing over the boat hook to cornwallis whose turn it was to hammer the bell we distinctly heard the stealthy sound of the motor-boat returning and cornwallis mounting my shoulders and nearly breaking my neck in his excitement reported a red light below then he heard several harsh voices cornwallis said we are now probably done for towler the spy has evidently been to a submarine and he's heard the bell and you can pretty easily guess what submarine germans will do to us in fact our fate is right bang off i said surely they wouldn't kill two kids like us and he said killing kids is their chief sport they can't be too young from babies upward so it looked pretty putrid in every way, and it wouldn't be true, and it wouldn't be believed, if I said Cornwallis and me weren't in the funk of our lives. But the awful moments didn't last long, for almost before the padlock was undone, what should we hear but the well-known yelp of Brown? Our first thought was that the crew of a German submarine had also got Brown, but even in our present condition we felt that was too mad all the same when he actually appeared with two other men and the spy he looked such a ghastly object and was so white and wild that it seemed clear that he was in a mess of some kind what he said when we both appeared in the lantern light was thank god for the first and last time in his life he was apparently glad to see us but after this expression of joy, he instantly became beastly, and in fact so much so that a man behind him, who did not fear him, told him not to talk so roughly to us at such a moment. This man turned out to be no less a man than the great Mr. Foster himself, and he explained to us that we had put everybody to frightful anxiety and distress, and that in fact he had feared the worst. 
This much surprised us, and what surprised us still more was Mr. Foster's attitude to the spy, for he called him Joe and treated him in a most friendly manner. We all went back to the motorboat, and while it tore away to the landing place under Mr. Foster's beach, we told our story. During this narrative, which was listened to very carefully, the man called Joe made several remarks of a familiar nature, which showed he was not in the least afraid of anybody, and we found out later that he was an old and trusted servant of Mr. Foster's, who lived at Dallam and who managed Mr. Foster's motorboat and caught lobsters for him and fish of many kinds, and was in fact a sort of family friend of long standing. It was admitted, however, that Joe was very queer to look at, and also odd in his ways. This arose entirely from his peculiar fate, because fate had had a dash at him, too, and when a young man he had once gone out fishing, and returned to find that during his absence his wife had run away forever with another mariner. This was such a surprise to him that it had quite turned his head for a time, and in fact he had been odd ever since. Having told our tale, we ventured to ask why everybody had feared the worst, and Mr. Foster explained the situation, and showed what a splendid and remarkable bit of work fate had really done for Cornwallis and me. He said, What did you intend to do when you left Joe's hut? And I said, We were going to tear back along the beach, sir, and give the alarm, because we thought he was a pro-German spy. Joe gurgled at this, but did not condescend to answer. "'And do you know what would have happened in that case?' asked Mr. Foster. "'You would have explained to us that we were on a false scent, sir,' said Cornwallis. "'No, my child, I should not,' answered Mr. Foster, "'for the very good reason that I should never have seen either of you again alive, nor would anybody else. If you had started to go back by the beach, you would both have been overtaken by the tide and most certainly been drowned.' "'Crikey!' said Cornwallis under his breath to me. "'Yes,' continued the good and great Mr. Foster, "'if Joe here, quite ignorant of the fact that you were trespassing in his store-shed, "'had not turned the key upon you both, "'you would neither of you be alive to tell your story now. "'Somehow we never thought we were trespassing, "'but doing our duty to England. "'It just shows how different a thing looks from different points of view.' "'You ought to be very thankful,' said Mr. Foster, "'and I hope this terrible experience will leave its mark in your hearts, my boys. "'You have been spared a sad and untimely death, "'and I trust that the memory of this night "'will help you both to justify your existence in time to come.' "'We said we trusted it would. "'Then Brown, of course, put in his oar. "'And if you had used your eyes, Towler and Cornwallis, "'as I have tried so often to make you,' he squeaked, "'you would have seen a notice on the cliff "'warning people not to go beyond a certain point, "'as the tides were very dangerous.' "'We were studying the wonders of nature, sir,' I answered, "'in rather a sublime tone of voice, "'because this was no time for sitting on Cornwallis and me.' and just then the motorboat came to shore, and it was found that we could catch the last train back to Dallam. So we caught it. Of course, all the other chaps had gone back in the brakes ages ago. Mr. Foster blessed us before the train started in a very affectionate and gentlemanly way, but Brown did not bless us on the journey back. In fact, he said that he should advise the doctor to flog us. We preserved a dignified silence. 
he couldn't send a telegram on in advance as the office was shut and therefore when we arrived at merivale it was rather triumphant in a way and the news of our safe return created a great sensation in the excitement food for us was overlooked entirely until cornwallis told the matron we had had nothing to eat since dinner food was then provided the doctor said very little until the following day and then he told the whole story to the school after morning prayers and not until we heard it from him did we realize what a good yarn it really was but nothing was done against us much to brown's disappointment and from the way he hated cornwallis and me afterwards i believe he got ragged in private for not keeping his eye on us we wrote a very sporting letter to mr foster and said we should not forget his great kindness as long as we lived and we also wrote home and scared up ten pounds for joe because he had locked us up and saved our lives it was an enormous lot of money and far beyond what we expected my father sent five and the mother of cornwallis also sent five and cornwallis truly said it showed that my father and his mother must think much more highly of our lives than they have ever led us to believe in fact so excited was the mother of cornwallis about it that she couldn't wait till the end of the term but had to come and see him and kiss him and realize that he was still all there but my father waited until the end of the term for me he is rather a hard sort of man compared to such a man as mr foster for instance and when i did go home and explained all about what fate had done he said he hoped that i would not give fate cause to regret it at any rate during the summer holidays End of story eleven